Welcome. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast, the show that cuts through the fog of war and updates you about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. Don't forget to like, comment and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. Hello, I'm Marina Yevshan, co-host of the Russia-Ukraine War Report podcast, and today is October 10, 2023. It's been 3,514 days since Russia's illegal occupation of Crimea on January 27, 2014, and one year and 229 days since Russia expanded its war of aggression against Ukraine. During today's podcast, you can use a Russia-Ukraine war map to help you visualize the areas discussed, and there is a link in the podcast description. The Russia-Ukraine war report is compiled by our team from around the world. Today's report includes information from our direct contacts and journalists in Ukraine, the Russian Ministry of Defense and the Ukrainian General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine Morning Reports, Operational Commands North, South and East of Ukraine, Open Source Intelligence, our in-house team of analysts and geospatial experts, and pro-Ukrainian and pro-Russian mill bloggers and social media channels with a track record of trying to be accurate. We have one mission – the truth because the truth matters. Let's start with the daily assessment. We maintain that the sought response by Ukraine's allies after Russian aggression on Ukraine's border will eventually lead to a significant incident that could result in military intervention, unless a firmer position is taken. We assess that the Ukrainian counteroffensive is likely culminating even though Ukrainian forces have not exhausted their combat potential, due to the early arrival of heavy rains, which will bring Bazdurizhia, that's Ukrainian for roadless, degrading tractability for both combatants. The removal of the United States Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, has put future Ukrainian military operations at extreme risk. We further assess that the abrupt ending of U.S. military aid will be catastrophic if a resolution is not reached within the next 16 to 23 days. Additionally, Western partners are not meeting their promised military training, heavy equipment and ammunition delivery dates, and these continued delays are negatively impacting Ukraine's military capabilities. The Kremlin is using the Israel-Hamas war as a distraction in the information space to fracture support for Ukraine further and has engaged in large-scale disinformation campaigns. While the inability of Russian military leaders to stop the ongoing Ukrainian offensive and retake the battlefield initiative has put significant pressure on Russian chief of staff Valery Gerasimov, the arrival of Bezdurizhia will likely buy the Russian leader additional time. We maintain that Russia has started its campaign to destroy Ukraine's energy infrastructure, and while the possibility of an intentional nuclear accident caused by Russian occupiers at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant remains low, the threat should be taken seriously. Today's action report starts in Kharkiv, where the situation is a repeat of yesterday. In the Kupiansk operational area, AO, Russian forces continued combat operations in the direction of Sinkivka and Ivanivka. A prominent Russian mail blogger claimed Russian troops made marginal gains near Ivanivka, without evidence, with no other sources claiming a Russian advance. 
Here is your update on the situation in the Donbass, starting in Luhansk. In the Svatova AO, Russian forces continued attacks east and northeast of Makivka and were unable to advance. Similar to the failed offensive in the summer near Novoyehorivka, Russian troops are suffering significant losses to make insignificant gains and will likely exhaust their combat potential. Two more civilians were evacuated from Makivka by the regional police after relatives of the couple appealed for assistance. Further south, in the Klishchivka AO, Russian forces attempted to push Ukrainian troops back across the railroad grade near Klishchivka and Andreevka without success. The Russian Ministry of Defense, Armod, reported that Ukrainian forces were on the offensive near Kurdyumivka and, per Kremlin policy, made claims of glorious victory without evidence. In southwestern Donetsk, it is unclear if Russia has again exhausted combat potential or entered an operational pause due to the weather. Near Avdiivka, Armod reported that Ukrainian forces were on the offensive in the direction of Vodyane. Fighting continued in Marienka and south of Novomikhailivka, where Russian forces had a company of mechanized infantry rendered combat ineffective during a failed advance late last week. Two tanks and three BMP-3 infantry fighting vehicles were destroyed, and there were significant losses among the dismounts. We'll link to the video in our situation report, and there is more information in the podcast description. North of Staromlinivka, the general staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine, GSAFU, reported a Russian offensive in the direction of Staromayorske ended in failure. On the Zaporizhia-Donetsk administrative border, Armod claimed Ukrainian forces continued to be on the offensive near Priyutne, while GSAFU reported a Russian advance in the direction of Levadne was unsuccessful. In occupied Donetsk, occupation officials claimed shelling damaged a substation, knocking out power to 28,500 households in the western parts of the city. Local investigators shared videos and pictures that refute an earlier report that Russia was building a new highway between Taganrog and Mariupol. The construction adjacent to the existing two-lane road is part of the railroad line that is being built between Taganrog, Rostov-on-Don and Mariupol to bypass the existing railroad from the Crimean Peninsula to occupied Zaporizhia. In Zaporizhia, Brigadier General Oleksandr Tarnavsky, commander of the operational strategic group of troops Tavria, reported that Ukrainian forces carried out 795 fire missions, the lowest number reported since June the 4th. The Russian Aerospace Forces, VKS, only carried out eight airstrikes, indicating that poor weather significantly slowed the operational tempo. The situation in the Orihiv AO was relatively stable. Ukrainian forces made marginal gains in the western edge of Verbove, taking advantage of the inability of the VKS to provide close air support CAS, for Russian troops. Positional fighting continued along the Surovikin line, while Russian and Ukrainian forces traded defensive positions near Novoprokopivka and Robotene. 
A prominent Russian mail blogger claimed Ukrainian forces made marginal gains in the direction of Kopani and Nesteryanka after probing the area for weak points in the Russian defenses. In occupied Zaporizhia, another Russian ammunition depot and Russian troop concentration in Tokmak was warmly welcomed to Ukraine by rockets fired by HIMARS. It's time to talk about the Black Sea, including the countries of Romania and Bulgaria, occupied Crimea and the Mykolaiv and Odessa regions. Since Ukraine's strategic victory in the Black Sea, activity has significantly decreased. Operational Command South reported one vessel of the Black Sea fleet was on patrol, a Kilo-class submarine capable of launching up to four caliber cruise missiles. The main directorate of defense intelligence for the Ministry of Defense of Ukraine, OHUR, stated that the October 7 S-200 missile strike on the Russian logistics center in occupied Jankoy hit a group of Spetsnaz, killing 21 and wounding 16. While we can't verify the number of casualties, Russian sources confirmed that a Russian base was hit and personnel was killed and wounded. On the night of October 9-10, Odessa was attacked by dozens of Shahid-136 kamikaze drones. Odessa Oblast Administrative and Military Governor Ova Oleh Kiper reported that logistics infrastructure was damaged in the attack, but there were no casualties. A fire in a three-story building in Fontanka was reportedly due to an electrical failure and unrelated to the drone attack. Now, let's talk about theater-wide events. Russia launched 36 Shahid-136 kamikaze drones at Ukraine, with air defenses shooting down 27 in the Odessa, Mykolaiv and Kherson regions. At the time of recording, we could not account for the other nine and don't know how many successfully hit their targets in Odessa. Ukrainian Air Force spokesperson Colonel Yuri Ignat said that Ukraine needs the ability to shoot down Russian aircraft that patrol the borders and launch an increasing number of glide bombs. Quote, it is theoretically possible to shoot down bombs, but this is practically impossible. The occupiers began their attacks with these fabs en masse. At first, these were single strikes, and then bombs weighing 500 kilograms and even 1,500 kilograms were used more and more. At first, these attacks were random, bombs fell into the fields, but the enemy is learning, and now these bombs are harassing the front line. Unquote. President of Ukraine Volodymyr Zelensky dismissed Major General Igor Tantsura, the commander of the Territorial Defense Forces of the Armed Forces of Ukraine. Russian propagandists had falsely claimed that Tantsura was killed in May 2023. His replacement is Major General Anatoly Barhilevich, who was the Deputy Chief of Staff of the Army Ground Forces Command. Former Deputy Minister of Defense Anatoly Shapovalov has been remanded into custody until November 1, with bail set at 50 million hryvnias. That's $1.35 million. Shapovalov was arrested as part of an anti-corruption investigation for issuing contracts to purchase equipment for the armed forces without quality requirements. 
Lieutenant Colonel Vitaly Boranov, commander of the 206th Battalion of the Territorial Defense Forces, died in combat from a heart attack. Baranov was a cyborg who took over the 90th separate battalion at the Donetsk International Airport after the unit commander was captured. He went on to command at Chernobyl, the Kiev Reservoir, Mykolaiv, Kherson, Kharkiv, and finally near Bakhmut. The president of Romania, Klaus Johannes, announced that President Zelensky would meet with him in Romania on October 10 to discuss border security and the situation in the Black Sea. Johannes wants to discuss countering Russian aggression and the development of bilateral cooperation between the two nations. Is NATO about to get serious about securing the border regions from Russian attacks? We hope so. There is growing momentum in Washington, D.C. to fast-track a so-called one-and-done package that would bundle military aid to Ukraine and Israel, as well as funding for United States border security, into a single package of up to $200 billion. Congress still needs to select a new Speaker of the House, with the Israel-Hamas war adding a new level of urgency. Between 50 and 100 billion dollars in funds would be allocated to Ukraine for the 2024 fiscal year. What is going on in the land of Mobix, mobilization and Mir? It's time for a Russia update. The Ukrainian 3rd Separate Assault Brigade captured the commander of the Russian Alga Battalion of the 72nd Motor Infantry Brigade. The major was wounded in the fighting and, during questioning, claimed that the 120 troops that advanced with him were essentially wiped out. The battalion commander claimed he only arrived on the front on the day of his capture, but his appearance indicated that he had been on the front lines for weeks with a deep, untrimmed beard and overgrown hair. Quick assessment. The capture of a battalion commander indicates that Ukrainian troops made a significant advance in the Klishchivka area, overrunning established Russian defensive positions. Russian command officers will join their troops when orders aren't being properly carried out or there is a communication breakdown. This is due to Russia's top-down command structure and the lack of a non-commissioned officer corps. The Russia-Ukraine War Report podcast discusses war crimes and human rights abuses that some may find disturbing. Today's report contains mild details of torture. If you are sensitive to these topics, you can skip to the next section. Timestamps are in the podcast description. At the United Nations, the permanent representative for Russia, Vasily Nibenza, admitted that Russia intentionally targeted the cafe and grocery store in Groza on October 6 with a ballistic missile, claiming that a funeral for a, quote, high-ranking Ukrainian nationalist was being held and was attended by, quote, many of his neo-Nazi accomplices. He went on to claim that almost all the bodies were men of military age. He said all that with a straight face. Apparently, a six-year-old boy killed by Russia was also a neo-Nazi man of military age. The high-ranking nationalist being reburied was no senior officer. 
Andrei Kozer volunteered with his son Denis in the opening days of Russia's expanded war of aggression against Ukraine. After training, the elder Kozer was sent to defend Popasna, where he was killed on the third day of his deployment. His son continued to serve until he was wounded and unfit for service. Kozer's son wanted to bury his father in his home village with the wake held at the cafe in Groza. The attack killed almost one-sixth of villagers, including Denis and his 20-year-old wife. According to the recent news, Ukrainian officials increased the death toll to 53. Five people remain missing. United Nations war crime experts arrived in the village to investigate the attack. The representative of the UN organization in Ukraine, Danielle Bell, told reporters that, quote, It is still too early to draw conclusions from our investigation. But as a person, I just cried. This is terrible. This is the most terrible thing I have seen during my stay in Ukraine. Fifty-two lives were lost in one second. Unquote. The spokesperson for the regional prosecutor's office, Dmitro Chubenko, said there were no indications that a local resident assisted Russia in targeting the funeral. Late last week, the Russian ambassador to Austria was summoned to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs due to the attack. After the meeting, the ministry released a statement that said, in part, quote, Attacks on the civilian population are a war crime. Those responsible must be brought to justice. A court in Finland refused to release co-founder and pro-Russian neo-Nazi Rusic group Jan Petrovsky, also known as Voislav Torden, from custody. Petrovsky is fighting extradition to Ukraine, where he is facing multiple charges for war crimes committed in 2014 and 2015 that he self-documented. During the start of Russia's war on Ukraine, Petrovsky shared videos of extrajudicial execution of Ukrainian prisoners of war, torture and cutting off the ears of the wounded. After documenting his atrocities, Petrovsky is now worried that he could receive ill treatment if transferred to Ukraine. Take all the time you need. Deep breath. There is some better news. The Netherlands announced a new 102 million euro aid package to Ukraine to prepare for winter, support ongoing reforms and other investments. Also, Azerbaijan will support Ukraine over the winter with equipment and parts to restore damaged electrical infrastructure in anticipation of future Russian attacks. The Russian Federation and Ukraine swapped the remains of soldiers killed in action, with 64 Ukrainians repatriated and 60 returned to Russia. There are reports that Russia and Ukraine have reached an agreement on a large-scale prisoner exchange, but there aren't any details. Nine more illegally deported children were repatriated. They were returned from the occupied Kherson. Before my co-host and our executive producer Zarina Zabriskie takes over with a special report, here is economic news. Before I start, a quick footnote. We are covering the Israel-Hamas war as special reports through our Patreon. You can find a link in the podcast description. Russia has partially lifted its export ban on diesel fuel. While the pause in exports helped improve supply, 
Deputy Minister of Agriculture of the Russian Federation Andrei Razin said that prices and supply did not improve in all regions. The day before the start of the Israel-Hamas war, the Wall Street Journal reported that Saudi Arabia has agreed to increase oil production due to price increases causing global demand destruction. Before trading on Monday, oil prices had dropped over 10% in less than a week as supply of refined fuels grew in most regions. The deal to increase production was meant to increase U.S. congressional support for a deal that would normalize relations between Saudi Arabia and Israel. It remains to be seen if the Saudis will increase production as previously agreed, and the effort to normalize Saudi-Israeli relations is likely dead. U.S. Secretary of the Treasury Janet Yellen said that Washington was preparing new sanctions against Russia for violating the oil price ceiling set by the G7 and supporting nations. The type of sanctions and how they would be enforced was not announced. The cost of Chinese cars important to Russia is going to increase, with shippers no longer willing to use the Black Sea port of Novorossiysk due to the risk of attacks. Shipments will now go around the European continent through the Baltic Sea to St. Petersburg. What's old is new as Russians embrace the good old days of the Soviet Union. As inflation and interest rates increase and wages stagnate, developers in Moscow have come up with a new way to make housing more affordable. People can buy apartments, called condos in the United States, as small as 5 square meters, that's 54 square feet. For a frame of reference, the average prison cell in the United States is 48 square feet. The micro-apartments enable developers to put more units per floor, while providing a price point that the average Russian can afford. Thank you for listening to The War Report. Your support of my home, Ukraine, helps us make history and protect the future for all. Now it's my pleasure to introduce Zarina Zabriskie with her continuing coverage from the front lines in Kherson. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. Our team of journalists, researchers and analysts is funded by readers, listeners and viewers just like you. To support independent journalism, please consider becoming a patron. You can find us on patreon.com at Malcontent News. Russia has a well-documented history of employing a military strategy known as scorched earth, which involves the deliberate destruction of virtually all resources of value to an enemy, including vital resources like water, food, human lives, animals, vegetation, tools, and infrastructure. It can be executed either by a retreating army, leaving nothing valuable for the advancing enemy, or by an advancing army to counter unconventional warfare tactics. Key components of this strategy include destroying communication networks, blowing up bridges, and sabotaging electrical generators. Deploying scorched earth tactics against non-combatants has been explicitly prohibited under the 1977 Geneva Conventions. Today, I speak to my colleague Paul Conroy, 
veteran war correspondent and celebrated photographer about the attacks on Kherson. Okay, well, the situation as as we see it in Kherson is is deteriorating rather rapidly. There's been a noticeable lack of people on the streets. There was anyway when we arrived, but I drove to one of the few remaining stores open last night and it was a- absolutely deserted. And, and, you know, the reason is the drumbeat of the Russian military machine is ramping up. Um, civilian areas are getting hit harder, more continually. And and with, you know, a vast array of weapons, primarily what they're using a lot now that that they have a lot of these aerial bombs. They're basically old stock 500-pound bombs that some wizard in Moscow has thought, let's put kind of wings and a basic guidance system on. Um, but they're, they're, they're like a, a blunt instrument in, in a surgical operation. They just drop them and maybe they'll hit what they want. Maybe they won't. Maybe they'll hit the civilian areas. Um, but these are almost impossible to defend against. They're launched from, you know, 50, 60 kilometers away at a great altitude, dropped from one of the later MiGs or a Sequoia, and then they, they just glide in on their targets, which makes it a particularly difficult target for air defense because there's no, there's no engine, there's no heat signature for infrared and for heat seeking to guide onto them and difficult also for radar to track them. So they, they are a unique problem because of their, their death-bringing abilities, but the sheer amount of them they have in stock, you know, it, it, this is just old stock. They used to be just dropped from the bottom of a plane. If they hit the target very good, if they didn't, they still cause a lot of damage. But if you bring that explosive firepower into a civilian neighborhood with old people, with anybody, then the effects can be absolutely devastating. As well as the aerial bombs just across the river, which is not far, it's two, two kilometers, I think, from where we are. We're well within reach of the Grad BM-21 rocket system, which is, again, is a bit of a blunt instrument. It's not that accurate, but they've got plenty of them. They're using stock dating back to the 60s at the moment, we found one. They tend to be another one of those ones you fire into a neighborhood and you, you hope it hits something. They've got heavy artillery that hits this side. If you're down by the river, you're well within range, mortar range, which is four to five miles. Um, there's, it's every weapon in the Russian arsenal is pointing at this bank of the Dnipro River. And there's very, very little can be done to stop this. You know, counter-battery fire is effective from the Ukrainian side, but I don't know and nobody knows just how much of that is down here, you know, how much has been diverted to the Zaporizhia front, how much has gone up to Lehman and, and Kupiansk, where there was a, an attack yesterday. So the city is vulnerable. The city is constantly vulnerable. And you can see this in the decline in population. People are, people are disappearing. We were at the train station yesterday. We saw people leaving. And, you know, when you can visibly see a decline in population something to take note of and and I've seen this before and it's happening again the city has been depopulated and crushed under the weight of the russian military machine we've we've met some local journalists and I, and i think last week a team from reuters got in but generally it it's a difficult place to report from because you need the permissions to be in here and then permissions are difficult to come by 
I also think that her son suffers from the the mindset that hey, you guys were liberated in November. They may have been liberated, but actually the biggest exodus has been since the liberation when the Russians took off the gloves and just decided that if we can't have it, nobody can, which is a very Putin mindset. So yeah, it's difficult to report from. It's dangerous to report from. You know, we're we're constantly updating our kind of security situation. The world really should be paying attention to what's happening in Kherson. It was the first city, first and probably only city occupied by the Russians. Don't be fooled into thinking that because it's got the term liberated stamped on it that all is well and rosy in the garden here, because it, it most certainly is not. In the 1980s, the Russian army employed scorched earth tactics during Soviet-Afghan war against towns and villages in an effort to prevent the return of Mujahideen forces in Syria. Scorched earth tactics have played a significant role in Russia's military campaign against opposition militias, when Russian Air Force and Allied ground troops implemented a starve-or-submit strategy besieging towns and cities held by rebel forces. In the ongoing Russian war of aggression against Ukraine, these strategies continue to be used. Some of the hardest-hit areas included Mariupol, Marinka, and Bakhmut in the Donetsk region, as well as Severodonetsk, Rubizhna, and Papasna in the Luhansk region, and Izum in the Kharkov region. From what we see here in Kherson, the Russians are employing the same technique. We continue our interview with Dmitro Pletinchuk, the Speaker of the Naval Forces of the Armed Forces of Ukraine. The interview got interrupted and I had to re-record the second part. Here it is, and I hope that you enjoy it as much as I have. The British intelligence recently summed it up. These attacks by Ukrainian military, more coordinated and damaging than previous ones in the war, inflicted severe yet localized physical damage to the fleet. Do you agree with the British experts who believe that the Russian fleet can still perform core wartime tasks? They are currently not actually patrolling that area of the sea that is closer to us, and even the southwestern part of the Black Sea, because they feel the danger. They are now using it in combat operations. Only those ships that they are carriers of long-range weapons, that is, cruise missiles. The rest of the ships, in principle, do not currently perform combat tasks in the Black Sea, precisely because of the threat of damage to it. The British intelligence experts wrote that this dynamic, deep strike battle in the Black Sea, seems to be pushing Russia into a reactive posture. It also shows Ukraine's ability to challenge the Kremlin's power projection from Sevastopol. In your opinion, how has the recent series of major attacks on the Russian Black Sea Fleet, including strikes on its headquarters in September 2023, 
impacted the fleet's operational capabilities and strategic posture. Of course, these strikes affect the strategic status. They have quite a powerful and large group. Nevertheless, they are now mostly in standby mode, so they hide in their barrier base where they have at least some kind of anti-aircraft system. And accordingly, these drone attacks, and of course not just drones, missile attacks as well, affect combat capability and their planning. That is, it is impossible to say that their resources remained intact. Can we speak about the successful high-precision attacks on the headquarters in the still-occupied Sevastopol on September 22nd? You said the other day in an interview that in Russia there are admirals to manage fleets who know well the state of their forces, personnel, how to properly manage them and how to deploy them. And now you said they are losing the person who is leading this whole process. Yet, there were reports in the Russian media that the commander of the Russian Black Sea Fleet, Viktor Sokolov, did not die after the strike on the headquarters. As for the death of Sokolov, we did not confirm the information. I have always said in my interviews that if it turns out that he is dead, then yes, it will have a significant impact on the loss of control over the forces of the Black Sea Fleet for some time, because these people solved many issues. And while we are waiting for confirmation of this information in full, regarding the death of the commander himself and regarding the loss of personnel from the headquarters of the naval forces of the Black Sea Fleet, and if these losses really happen and they are confirmed, then, of course, it will affect their combat capability for some time, because these military authorities have a high status, and if at the lower level, at the level of the brigade units, everything works on momentum, the main decisions are still made in the headquarters that was hit. You said that the Russian attacks on the seaports of Odessa region have an economic nature more than military as it is a battle for the export of grain. In fact, Russia is increasing attacks on Ukraine's food infrastructure. There were 33 verified attacks in August 2023, the highest in a single month of monitoring. You said that in combination with terrorist nature of attacks, this is a great example of the Kremlin geopolitics. What's the connection between the attacks on Odessa seaports and the economic rivalry between Ukraine and Russia? And could you discuss how these attacks fit into the concept of hybrid warfare as a part of Kremlin geopolitics? In relation to hybrid war, the economy is always a component of any war, regardless of whether it became the cause of this war or a consequence, or directly economic consequences occurred during the war. Therefore, the economy and war are always connected. They are connected clearly because the troops fight with the material base. It's always a matter of provision, and as for direct connection, 
as the cause of the economy and war, the Kremlin usually starts all its wars mostly for economic reasons. In the same way, the war in Syria, which was unleashed by Russia, is connected with the export of oil. And in this way, they removed the competitor Azerbaijan from the European market because the supply had to pass through the territory of Syria. And accordingly, in this way, it is not competitive. They always solve their economic issues first place. In general, the economy and political influence are always interconnected. And any dictatorship is also always based on economic indicators. And therefore, for them, the economy and the issue of maintaining power within the country are always the first source of their policy in principle. Everything they do, they do in order to get their power inside the Russian Federation. For this, they always use geopolitics and foreign policy as a tool for gaining power in Russia itself. Could you provide more details on the damage caused by the attacks and potential strategies to prevent such incidents in the future? We cannot reveal the details of this issue. Of course, we can only note that Russia continues to pursue a policy of attrition, that they continue to inflict fire damage specifically on civilian infrastructure, Whenever they hit civilians in civilian towns in Aleppo, they always said that this was the headquarters of ISIS, and they do the same in Ukraine. Wherever the rocket falls, they call it the location of the headquarters. This is their information policy. They do not shy away from outright lies and manipulation. So, of course, everything they tell is propaganda. As for the direct damage to our infrastructure, we can only state the fact that, unfortunately, it continues, and they hit the grain storages in the first place or the equipment involved in the logistics of transporting grain. Still, as of last week, seven vessels left Odessa ports and two came in. Can you please explain the routes taken by vessels departing from and arriving at Odessa ports amidst these attacks? Yes, we have seven out of seven successful cases of leaving our water area. That is, from the ports of Odessa and Pivdeni through the Bosphorus, that is, these vessels were able to leave the water area. So, we found and indicated the safest corridor, in our opinion. The armed forces of Ukraine provide security in the area, that is, the water area of Ukraine, the territorial waters of Ukraine. And then they are already moving through the territorial sea, the territorial waters of the NATO member countries Romania, Bulgaria, and the Republic of Turkey. And they can feel safe on the way to the Bosphorus. It's because, of course, on their political shows, the Russians constantly tell everyone that they are at war with NATO. 
but they say this for the domestic audience. We see that they are, of course, afraid of NATO and that these civilian vessels are in principle safe when they are in the territorial waters of NATO countries. And in the area we are responsible for, this is already being done by the coastal missile artillery forces of the naval forces, the aviation of the armed forces of Ukraine, and other parts of the defense and security of Ukraine. For their attacks on the critical and food infrastructure, the Russian military use missiles, drones, and even Onyx, the anti-ship missiles, not made for these attacks. And you said that it means that the Russians do not have enough weapons to attack Ukraine. You said that they use not their stock on calibers, but the newly produced ones, and the Russian Federation needs time to produce them. There is a problem with the foreign-made parts that are not being delivered because of the sanctions. How does the choice of weaponry reflect the availability of Russian military assets and the challenges posed by sanctions? foreign-made parts, and the need for domestic production of weapons like calibers. As for the choice of weapons that they use, as we can see, they use a variety of weapons systems, but all of them are designed specifically to strike at the port and its civilian or critical infrastructure. As for calibers, we can see that the waves of application, the gap between them is getting bigger and bigger because they need more and more time to accumulate them. Because they each of these types of weapons, the presence of foreign parts is quite large, and in some missiles it can be 30 to 40 parts. And until they solve these problems with replacement or with gray imports, then, of course, it will be difficult for them. Nevertheless, as you can see, Russians are now actively cooperating with Iran, which has been under sanctions for four decades and has quite powerful channels for circumventing sanctions. Well, thank you very much, Captain Platonchuk, for this illuminating interview. You've been listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. To help keep us independent, please consider providing financial support by becoming a patron. Want on-demand news in your hand? Download the Google News app and make Malcontent News one of your favorites to receive breaking news updates. Thank you for listening.